She would never demand that of you, so I will instead. Hey, in just a moment, we're going to read our passage for today, but I want to take a second, and I want to pray together one of our very own, Ron Hager, who's sitting in the back. He sits in the back to be avoided, um, and so my drawing attention to him is probably super exciting for him. He leaves today to go to Thailand on a missionary trip with a group of guys called Move. Uh, and they go and they build churches and they build orphanages and they do all kinds of extremely important work. Now, they're going to Thailand, which is awesome, but there's still going to be a lot of work involved and travel involved. And so I want to just pray over him and the entire team together. Can we do that together? Okay. Bow your heads and close your eyes. God, thank you for this trip. And we ask for your provision in Ron's life and the MOVE team everything that they need emotionally and physically from safety to sustenance to inspiration. God, I pray that you would meet all of those demands exceedingly. And God, for the ministry that's going to happen, I pray that you would bless them. Keep them safe as they travel. Keep them safe as they are in Thailand. Help them to run into the people that they need to run into and to share the gospel Thank you that your spirit will be working in that trip. We ask for powerful stories as he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We're going to miss you, Ron, but we know you're going to have a great time. So, hey, will you do me a favor and stand as we read God's word together? We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, and this might be one of the shorter passages that we're going to cover, and, uh, and it's yet very, very important. And so we're going to be in Luke 6 reading verses 39 and 40. That's it. What's actually happening in this moment is Jesus is teaching. He's covering a number of different things. If you look before and after this passage, there's a lot going on. But he stops right in the middle of this one teaching, specifically on judging others. And he tells a completely different parable, a two-sentence parable that is very important. So this is what it says. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Have a seat. Thank you so much. So most of you know, um, some of you do not, that I love to play basketball. Does anybody in here enjoy basketball? Playing, watching? Okay, there's a few. So we can connect a little bit on this. Um, I actually play around three times a week. Now, I know what you're thinking. You don't look like a guy who plays basketball three times a week. But I do, okay? And I have gotten to enjoy a particular group of guys who play the same regularity. Some of them play even more than that, but three days a week is all my body can handle. Some of them are professional players currently. Some of them are professionals from previous years or college players. And then there's just guys like me who love basketball and need the exercise. But the reason I love playing basketball the most, particularly with the group of guys I play with, is we have formed this bond and this brotherhood to which we turn to each other in things far beyond basketball. A number of them have actually attended Foundation Church and heard the gospel preached. They turn to different people for needs practically. I mean, it's a really rich and important group of guys to me. But when I first got there 10 plus years ago, I didn't really know anybody. And I actually wasn't that good at basketball. And so what I did was 
is I wanted to get better and I found somebody, thank you, Mike, yes. I found somebody who was indeed better and was also sort of like an alpha personality in the group. And I attached myself to this person because I wanted to get better at basketball, but I also wanted to connect with the group of guys. He was more experienced and he clearly had this like influence in that group. And over the years, because of my intentionality of uh, connecting with him, we actually became good friends. Now we're very good friends. And he would take the time over the years, including still to this day, take the time to explain to me different techniques about basketball from his professional years of playing, explain to me how I could move better or see the court better, whatever it may be, he would help train me. And I found myself not only learning from him about basketball, but I actually started to adopt a similar perspective on basketball. I started to adopt a similar playing style, not nearly as quality, <laughs> but it was similar in style, if you know what I mean. I found myself even sort of expressing myself like him, talking like him around the game. I found myself gesturing like him. Anybody relate to this? Somebody that you know, that you spent time around? Now, funny enough, this was not necessarily intentional. I mean, the connecting was, um, but all of the gesturing and the mimicking and these things that I sort of just picked up naturally, those happened because spending five to six hours a week with a person every week for 10 plus years, you just kind of pick up who they are. Right? You're a little bit more like your spouse. You're a little bit more like your parents. You're a little bit more like the friend that you spend a ton of time with. It's natural. Now, being in this world, listening to his stories, to his advice, to all the things that I was around him through, I started to become like him. Like I said, how I viewed the game of basketball, even his trash talk. Lots of your mom jokes in this world, okay? And I started to adopt those as well, so forgive me if I've ever made fun of your mom. It's not personal. <laughs> the point is, being with somebody over a significant amount of time will lead you to become like that person at least a little bit, right? At least a little bit, but probably more than that. And that could be a good thing, and that can be a bad thing. Right? It can be a good thing or a bad thing. Now, in Jesus' short parable that we just read in Luke chapter 6, he says something very profound. It's a short two-sentence parable, but he says something very profound. He says, the student is not above the teacher. So he limits the capacity of that person's training to their ability, which we understand. But he also says, but when fully trained, you will be like the teacher. When fully trained, you will be like the teacher. Right? So you may at times pick up on their information, but you're not fully trained until you are like the teacher as well. Meaning that at any given point in our life, we are being influenced by someone or something and probably a combination of both. And eventually, we begin to transform into the type of person that that person or thing is idealizing. We start to become like the things that we spend our attention on, that we give our time to, that we are around. Now, this is the essence of discipleship. If you've been around the church at all, then you know this, that discipleship is indeed the process of becoming more like 
the person of Jesus. And it's often through teaching and being around other people who are also around Jesus. And the fact cannot be denied, we are all being discipled. It's not a question of if you're being discipled, it's a question of what you are being discipled by, of who you are being discipled by. And so two weeks ago, we began a series talking about the idea of discipleship and what it means to be a disciple or to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, if you've missed either of the first two weeks or both of them, I would encourage you, go online and check them out. But for today, here is a key idea from what we have been talking about. Our goal as apprentices to Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, is to be with Jesus, we talked about last week, to be like Jesus, which we're going to talk about today, and to do what Jesus did. So last time, like I said, we spent our time looking at how to be with Jesus, and we know that being with Jesus today means that we know him through scripture and, for, and through prayer, right? We know that Jesus has returned to the right hand of God, his rightful place, but we still get to be with him through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives by prayer and scripture. That's what we talked about last week. But apprenticeship, discipleship, isn't simply about being with Jesus, it's becoming like Jesus. Well, how does this happen? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 what this process might look like, and so I wanna read this to you. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 says this, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, so this is a powerful description of how a person becomes like Jesus. And we must resist the temptation when we read this to think of this passage as a formula, right? We sort of do this thing, or at least I do, maybe you're better than me, probably you are, where we read scripture, we read passages like this where there's a clear start and a clear outcome and we think to ourselves, man, if I just do A, B, and C, then I will get what's promised in scripture. And it's possible, but it's not the guarantee. And the reason is, is because scripture is not transactional. It's not about the process of transacting with God. It's, a part, it's about being transformed by God. If we view scripture through a transactional framework instead of a transformational framework, then we get stuck when things don't go the way we think they should. Do we not? Anybody ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just Agree with me in your heart because I've been there and I'm sure you have too. Again, a transformation, I'm sorry, a transactional framework says if I do A and the Bible promises B, then I will receive what the promise is on my timing. So in other words, when I'm ready to change, then I'll do what the Bible says. And I expect the promise of scripture to meet my demands when I want them and when I need them. But the passage today does not say we will be transacted into his image 
as we uphold our end of the deal, so will God. It doesn't say that. It says we will be transformed. This transformational framework shows us that God is in control. God is doing all of the heavy lifting. God sees past, our past, your past, my past. He sees our present, your present, my present. And he sees the future. And it's because of all of this knowledge and because of his love for us that as we turn towards the Lord, he transforms us. This is a transformational process. Okay, so what is our role then? If our role isn't to dictate one way or another, right? If I do A and it's promised that I receive B, that I just do these things and then I will receive the promise. What's our role then? Well, this passage in particular and many others like it tell us that the simplest and most profound role in all of this is to turn towards the Lord. Simply adjust your life and turn towards the Lord. Okay, but how? How do we do that? Is this like a physical turning, right? Like if you've ever been to a sporting event or something similar and uh, the national anthem comes on and you kind of see people scrambling, right? They're like looking for a flag everywhere. Everybody been that? Like, oh, 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 where's the flag, right? Because you don't want to be the person left out not honoring the flag during the anthem. That's, that's not what this is talking about, though. Instead, we learn to turn towards the Lord when we posture our heart, when we posture our mind, when we give him our attention and our worship. And so when we turn towards the Lord, we are also turning away from something else. But what is that? What's the thing that we're turning away from? Well, I want to talk about how we turn towards the Lord, and I want to talk about what we're turning away from. But I'm going to start with what we're turning away from first, and then we'll work towards that first question. So there's some things that shape us. As I said earlier, we're all being discipled by someone and something. Your lifestyle, your belief patterns, your daily rituals, your food choices, your preferences altogether. Most of what we do is a choice that has been influenced by someone or something, is it not? And with that in mind, I want us to think about the primary ways that we are Disciples. So for today, I've kind of organized these into four large categories. There certainly might be others, but these four categories definitely and certainly influence who we are. They disciple us. They change us. They move us in a direction or away from a direction based off of what they're doing. The first one is stories. Whether they're fact or fiction, stories are designed to shape us through narrative. We have stories in media, they're all around us. We have advertising, it's designed to sell you something. If you didn't know that, you're welcome. All advertising is designed to get you to buy or interact with something. We have shows and movies, they tell us stories from the perspective of the author and the filmmaker and they have a specific goal in mind. They want to tell you a narrative, they want to tell you a story. Social media, this like perfectly manicured fake version of reality through a screen, right? It's not just out there haphazardly doing nothing. It's shaping you. It's discipling you. 
They're curated to tell you a story. Media is curated to disciple you. How about stories from other people? People tell stories and that helps us understand who they are. They either build credibility or they reveal truth. Sometimes they actually rob credibility. They deceive, whether intentional or unintentionally. There's all kinds of stories that people you know are telling you. Now, here's an example of something that you may have encountered if you've been around the church long enough. Have you ever heard someone say the phrase, money is the root of all evil? I've heard that plenty, right? The problem is that story is not the whole story. It's actually an inaccurate story, and there's something very important missing from that story. Let me read you the scripture from which they are referencing. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It says the love of money. And that is a key distinction. It tells a different story with very different implications. These are the ways that stories shape us. The point is they shape us, they disciple us, and we hear them often. So we have stories, we also have rhythms, call them habits or rituals. We all have particular things that we do with regularity because they matter to us. I have this one particular rhythm that I absolutely love. It's a hot cup of coffee in the morning with scripture and prayer. I love coffee with those things. But here's the thing, credible research, if you know this, credible research suggests that coffee might not be the best thing for me. (laughs) Did you know that? It says if I were to give up coffee, I would likely sleep better, that I would think more clearly, and I would probably be in a better mood. Come on, somebody. (laughs) But have I quit coffee? No. (laughs) Of course not. Are you crazy? I love my rhythms. And guess what? You do too. You love your habits. You love your rituals. You love your rhythms, even if they're not the best thing for you. And we have them, and they shape us. They disciple us. Thirdly, we have relationships, so stories and rhythms and relationships. The people we love, the people we enjoy, the people we do not enjoy, they all shape us, do they not? Through relationships, things are done to us, good or bad. Things are said to us that lift us up or tear us down. People come into your life and you begin to love them and it's an incredible blessing and then people leave your life and it hurts and it might even leave a scar. Relationships form us. They disciple us. They change us. They transform us into who we are and they're essential. So we have stories, rhythms, relationships. And finally, the final major category is environments. Our environments, your home, your workplace, your city, your state, where you choose to live. These are environments that shape the way you think and live. Now, here's a recent example. How about the extreme cold we had recently? Did anybody adjust their life patterns simply because they didn't want to deal with the cold? I know I did, right? And you do what you can to compensate gloves, coats, hats, all of those things. But sometimes you're like, I just don't need to go get that thing that badly. 
Turns out I didn't need it to survive like I thought and felt like I did. Or the snow. The snow changes people. It changes their rhythms, especially when places with less regularity of snow get snow, right? We've all heard of the cities who kind of shut down at the smallest inkling of snow. But even a city like ours, we have a threshold, right? One to two inches, not a big deal. Seven to 12, some of you weren't at church last week, okay? That's all I'm saying. And I know you wanted to be, so I'm not worried about it. How about you, parents? Ever catch yourself acting like your parents in certain moments? That's environmental influence. And now, in this digital age, we have our phone, this fully integrated digital environment tailored to suit your every want and your every desire with access to any information that you need or want. That's an environment. It shapes you. It disciples you. Now, none of these things are necessarily bad at their foundation. Stories are very powerful. They teach us and they motivate us, but they can also be destructive. Habits can support healthy change and personal growth, but they can also bring us down. Relationships are vital to the development of every single human, but man, sometimes they hurt right? And environments, they're unavoidable. No matter where you are, you're in an environment. And they can promote growth or they can promote destruction. All of these categories are essential sort of primary categories. And there's actually good and necessary parts of each one of these categories if we engage them in the right way. Now, this is where becoming like Jesus meets practical applications. The teachings and practices of Jesus are these life-giving, counterformational, right? You've heard us use that term, counterformational pathway to the transformed life. And each of these categories, the four that I mentioned, there's others, but the four that I mentioned for sure have counterformational practices within them that have greater substance than their lesser counterparts. And so I want to look at each one and just see how do these primary things that we interact with on a daily basis or almost every day, how can we use them through practice to actually be more like Jesus? First of all, stories. We talked about stories and what they are and what they do. When we move from stories into biblical teaching. Okay, so that's the first move that we're going to do. The counterformational practice of biblical teaching is so helpful when we are in the middle of this ever-changing and often confusing narrative of popular culture, where it's constantly moving and constantly changing the target, but you know what doesn't change? The Word of God. And so whether it's a sermon or a good commentary or a book that helps you explore the truth, that's just some of the ways that we can do it. There are great things that happen when you engage the word of God. Romans 12, verse 2, the first part of it says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing 
of your mind. Now here's an example. Let's say that at any point in your life, maybe it's been somewhere past or somewhere that's gonna come in the future, or maybe it's right now, you've felt like your life lacks purpose. Well, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says this about every person who knows Jesus. It says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. You know what that means? It means that every single person who knows Jesus has a God-given purpose for their life. And you know what? You're his handiwork. Some, some of them, my, one of my favorite descriptions is in the NLT. It's describing you as his masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. And you know what he did? He prepared so many things for you to accomplish. So it's not without purpose. You have plenty of purpose. You are the pinnacle of the created order. God has designed things for you. You are not without purpose. But see, what happens is, is we hear and we internalize stories and we believe these stories and they change our mind and they eventually change our heart and we sort of organize our, our lives around these stories. And if they're telling you lies, then those stories lead to destruction. But if they're telling you the truth, that you have purpose, that you have been designed with specific things that are only meant for you, then that can build you up. So we have to listen to the right stories. And we know that the practice of scripture does that. Our sermons, our curriculum, our home group curriculum, our kids' curriculum, all of it is built on scripture so that we all may be more like Jesus. Okay, so we go from stories to biblical study or biblical passages. We also want to convert our destructive rhythms into helpful constructive spiritual practices, right? Instead of letting our everyday rhythms and habits shape us with potentially aimless or worst case scenario destructive ends, we adopt the practices of Jesus, which point us towards the person that we are meant to become. Now, this requires a few things. First of all, it requires intentionality. Right? This is not going to happen by accident. The world's going to drag you in to some pretty bad habits. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 come over here. I have practices that lead to life. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, which most of you should be very familiar with because we talk about it all the time here, Jesus says, build, my li build your life, my life, build your life on the teachings of Jesus. And if you do that, you will be like a house on solid foundation, but if you build your life counter to the teachings of Jesus, you're going to be like a house built on sand. And I know the beach is amazing, but it's no place to build a house, okay? It's just not, because the storms of life will come and they will wipe it away. And we don't want you wiped away. So it requires intentionality. It also requires time. These practices, when done with regularity, they become the space which with God works in our lives 
And that change that happens in that moment, it happens in small increments over a long period of time. It's possible, and I've seen it happen, where miraculous change happens, and it may have happened to you in a specific area of your life, but for most people, in most situations, you are going to grow ever increasingly, as the passage tells us, into the likeness of Jesus. And it's actually a good thing because we couldn't handle the dramatic change that we need. It would be too much. So it requires time. We do these things with regularity and over time, Jesus changes us. We used the analogy a couple weeks ago of a marathon, right? Like if you were just like, man, I really want to run a marathon. I think you're crazy, but do it, okay? Now, simply running a marathon and trying really hard to run a marathon without the proper practice and training is indeed the recipe for extremely disappointing failure, possibly death, okay? I'm just letting you know. But with the right practice, with the right amount of time, you can actually train your mind, you can train your body to be able to achieve a marathon. And the spiritual practices are the same. Slowly, over time, Jesus is transforming us ever increasingly into his image so that we may be like him. And so we replace these destructive rhythms with the spiritual practices. Okay, how about relationships? Can we replace relationships? No, but what we can do is is we can do them intentionally and we do that through community. You're like, okay. What's the difference, Pastor Rick? Well, let me tell you. First of all, relationships are the connections that we sort of self-select or maybe are selected for us because of where we work or where we live, and we enjoy them for various reasons. Some of them are more useful than others, but community, as it's mentioned and taught in the Bible, is this God-given group of people who you're designed to follow Jesus alongside. That's us. And you might be looking around, you're like, I don't know if I want all these people. Too bad, because this is what's here, right? And some of them are at home. To those of you who are watching online at some point, this is your group. This is your community. And the reason is, is we can't follow Jesus alone. It was never intended to be that way. It was always intended to be done in community. There are no exceptions. And I think that there's two really good reasons why that happens. First of all, community squeezes the reality of what's inside of you out. It just does. If you're really in community, you see the best and the worst of those people. Our community group, our home group, is so full of life. Allie's laughing. She hasn't even heard me say anything, but she knows we've seen the best, we've seen the worst, and I love it. I stink and love it. And the second reason is that community is there to support you and build you up and carry you through the difficult times in your life. It is essential. So it's not just relationships, it's intentional community. And then finally, in place of random environments or unhealthy environments, we put the presence of God. Okay, so stick with me for just a second. The creation story highlights God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2, and that was for humanity to have consistent and constant presence with God. 
they were there. They were in the garden and God walked with them and talked with them and did life near them. They had consistent and constant connection with God, but sin interrupts that design. But you know what? Jesus restored it. So there was a period where this was really hard and that's why if you're probably in, if you do the Bible in the year, you're in the first five books of the Bible and you read about all these sacrifices, you're like, what the world is happening? It's because God could not know sin and in order to still be with his people, he demanded perfection and they had to cleanse themselves. But thankfully, Jesus is the final cleansing. And in Jesus, we are clean enough, we are removed of our sin and we can be back into the original design, which is the presence of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have uninterrupted and unlimited access to the presence of God. And it's so important. It's the most essential environment for the follower of Jesus. Okay, so we have those four. And we have the potentially hurtful or at least unhelpful versions, and we have the helpful versions. And there was a lot to take in there, but that's okay, don't worry, because this is, again, deep work done in community over a long period of time. If you're with us for any amount of time, you will hear about these practices. But here's the big idea. The call of every Christian is to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. And the way that we do that is to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And I want to remind you now, now that you've sort of heard the explanation of how this breaks down, the verse that we read near the beginning from 2 Corinthians, because it's so powerful. It says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which, becomes, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what do we do? We turn towards the Lord. Why? So that the veil which can include but is not limited to false narratives and destructive habits and community that's not helpful and environments that shape us the wrong way. It's included in that so that that veil is taken away. Well, why does that matter? Great question. Because turning towards the Lord, as it says right here, is where we find freedom. God is a God of freedom and he's called us to freedom. But with our veiled faces, we can't see it. We don't know how to get there. And once the veil is lifted, we can see Jesus in his glory, which then draws us towards him and transforms us, as it says, with ever increasing glory into his image. So therefore, our transformation into Christ's image to be like him involves these two things. We must turn towards the Lord, that's step one. For some, that means giving their life and giving their, their entirety to Jesus for the first time. If you're not a Christ follower, you have to start there, okay? And you can do that and you can pray and you can just say, Jesus, I want to follow you, I want to submit my life to you. 
And then after that, it involves being transformed. Once we're there, once we start, it means we transform. It means we change with ever-increasing likeness, small increments over time into the way that Jesus thought, the way that he taught, the way that he lived. So last week, we began to roll out our effort to do this as a community. We are calling it a rule of life. Now, if you don't know what a rule of life is, here's a really helpful definition for a rule of life. It says this. It should be on your screen as well. It says a rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that help us create space in our busy world to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did to live to the full, as it says in John 10.10, in his kingdom and in alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. So we rolled out that definition of what a rule of life is. And then I, I used an analogy, and it, the analogy is a trellis. If you've never seen a trellis or don't know what it does, this is a trellis, and here's what it does. It is the tool that is responsible to support the growth of a vine or a plant or a small tree. The trellis is simply the support system. This is, like I said, I think it's bamboo. I'm pretty sure that it is. But it's, it's not growing itself. It's, it's what it is now, okay? There's no root system. It can't grow. It's the support mechanism. It's the, it's the mechanism that gives the support to the living thing. The rule of life is similar to the life of a Christ follower. Your goal is to not be engaged in the rule of life, to be more like the rule of life, to have more discipline or more this or more that. Your goal, if you engage the rule of life, is to be more like Jesus. And these practices and these habits and these set of relational rhythms are designed to help you be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. So last week we rolled out three of 10 statements that define our communal, our community rule of life, this rule of life that if you so choose to engage will be hopefully these patterns and these sets of habits and rhythms that will engage you with Jesus so that he can transform your life. Now you don't have to worry about writing these down at the end of this. Um, when we're done rolling out all of the statements, we're going to give everyone a bookmark. It'll be on the website. You won't be able to miss it. So I just want you to listen. And I'm going to remind you of the first three, just so you have them. They'll be on your screen. We talk about the type of community that we want to be. It says, we want to be a community of rest in a culture of hurry and exhaustion through the practice of Sabbath. Number two, we want to be a community of connection with God in a culture of distraction and escapism through the practice of prayer. And number three, we want to be a community of courageous fidelity and orthodoxy. Those words are foreign to you. That's okay. You'll learn them. In a culture of ideological compromise through the practice of Scripture. Now, you'll notice that each of these statements is organized in a similar way. First of all, they describe the type of community that we want to be. And then they say the type of thing or the pattern or the rhythm 
that that type of community stands against the unhealthy expression of culture that we want to avoid. And then finally, it mentions the practice through which we move towards these rhythms, through this, these traits, through, through these things that we want to be. And so today, I want to give you three more, three more that I believe will help us be like Jesus. Those first three really help us be with Jesus. Scripture and prayer and Sabbath. If you were with us for the Sabbath practice in the fall, the whole design was to take 24 hours and reorient your life towards God. Now, whether you did 24 hours or six or whatever it may be, great, because it was some intentionality to move towards Jesus. Today, we're gonna give you three more that will help us be like Jesus. So they'll be on your screen as well. We wanna be a community of peace and quiet in a culture of anxiety and noise through the practice of solitude. Oh, solitude. That sounds hard, it will be. But the difference is so worth it. Number five, we wanna be a community of holiness in a culture of indulgence and immorality through the practice of fasting. We started our fasting practice in our home groups this week. And it's awesome, but it is demanding. But it's worth it because we wanna be holier we want God to work in our lives to change us and transform us more and more to the likeness of Jesus. And we wanna be a community of love and deep work in a culture of individualism and superficiality through the practice of community. So those are the next three. And each one of those, we will do a practice around in the coming months and years. Okay, we are not going to just demand that these things be done. We want to, as a team and as a church, learn to do them the way that Jesus taught them. We're gonna organize our lives around these things. Now, remember, these are not the goal. They are simply the tool to help you move towards the goal, which is to be like Jesus, right? And so whether um, you engage them uh, at a different time than when we do them collectively or whether you're just like, I'm not ready for that one right now, that's okay. We love that you're here. We just felt compelled as a team that if we are going to have functionally mature, deeply rooted disciples who can be like the house that's on the rock, that when the storms of life come and they slam against the side of the house, it doesn't just bend and fall over but it can stand and withhold and be strong. In just a moment, we're gonna pray and receive communion. So I'm gonna have the band come up, but I want us to pray together. It's really between you and God, how you interact with and how you adopt these practices. Um, we just simply wanna help give you the structure to do that, okay? So don't be intimidated by these things. And again, they're not the point. We're not saying that, oh man, if you don't fast, you're out. You're definitely not out, okay? But we're telling you that Jesus taught about fasting. And Jesus fasted. In fact, right before Jesus went through one of his most temptuous, he went through that temptation with the enemy where the enemy was trying to convince him, like, I'll give you the world. If you just 
bow down to me and worship me. I'll give you everything that you want. Right before that interaction, Jesus did what? He fasted for 40 days. Wow. And the reason, I believe, is because he knew how serious that moment was going to be and how much fasting mattered in that moment. So just like Jesus taught in the parable in Luke, he said, to be fully trained or when you are fully trained, you will be like your teacher. We are trying to create a pathway, to create a journey that we can do together as unique individuals on the same trajectory so that we may be fully trained as we apprentice to Jesus. That's our goal. And these practices are the space where we turn towards Jesus, as it says, to do in the Second Corinthians passage, so that we may be transformed into his image. So I'm going to pray. And actually, I want to invite you, if you want prayer specifically for something, um, Mike, who's over here underneath the storm sign, if you have a storm in your life, uh, you can pray with Mike and Chelsea. It's kind of fitting that it's right there. We didn't put that up, just so you know. But it's fitting because we go through the storms of life, and I want to tell you, prayer works. Prayer matters. Prayer is super important. And so if you would like someone to pray with you, they are there for that as well. And we're also going to receive communion together as a body. Now, the gift of communion is this. It's a tangible reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus did on our behalf so that we can have the Spirit of God in our life, so that we can have access to God, so that we have the presence of God. These things that we talked about are where they are and how they're done today because Jesus gave his life on our behalf so that we can receive the grace. And he said, do this, do communion to remember me. And so this gift where we get to taste it and touch it that's truly a gift. That's the reason why we do it. We want to be reminded every week, as often as we can, that Jesus' grace and his mercy is for us. So for the Christ follower, this is a very significant thing, right? For the non-Christ follower, it's just juice and a cracker, and you're welcome to that as well. But for the Christ follower, it's a tangible reminder of the gift of grace, salvation, mercy, these important things. So will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. And then as we sing a song, you are welcome to walk to the table and grab the elements, receive the elements, and then return to your seat. We're just going to sing one more song, and then I'll come send us off. God, we thank you so much for these reminders and for these um, beautiful expressions of your mercy and your grace and your love for us through things like communion and prayer and common worship. God, these gifts, they're so important and so life-giving. God, I pray that you would continue to work in our lives through them and that we may set our sights with our unveiled faces and turn towards you so that we may be more and more and more like you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's receive communion.